Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome back to the Ave Geeks podcast. I'm Sergeant Jack Anderson, and I'm here tonight with Sergeant Aidan Paul. How's it going? And Sergeant Madeline McConnell. Hello, everyone. And as always, we are going to be your hosts. Now, this week, we are bringing you a true crime episode. These are some of the most fun episodes to make, and they're some of our most popular ones. So we are going to be bringing you a brand new true crime episode. And it is going to be the case of D.B. Cooper, which is probably one of the most famous robberies and hijackings in all of aviation history. The classic right here. This is a, yeah, this is an absolute classic. Anyone who likes aviation mysteries whatsoever, there are a few they've heard of. They've heard of the Bermuda Triangle, Amelia Earhart, and D.B. Cooper. And this is the third of those ones which we are going to be covering. So, First, let's explain what the story of D.B. Cooper actually is. So on November 24th, 1971, a man going by the name of Dan Cooper boarded Northwest Orient Airlines Flight 305 from Portland, Oregon to Seattle, Washington. Before the plane took off, Cooper ordered a bourbon and soda, a detail which would later become infamous to this case. Like again, anyone who's ever read about the D.B. Cooper case, the first thing that pops into their mind is usually bourbon and soda. He was he was that cool that he was about to pull off a major hijacking and he drank bourbon and soda. What an absolute, like, I don't want to say legend because what he did was, um, it was bad. He, he broke the law, but I mean, we, we do hear all these stories of like legendary thieves and legendary bank robbers. So you can definitely put him up there with those guys. And it oh, shows yeah, definitely. Yeah, he was completely calm during this. Like, uh, he wasn't freaking out or anything. He was just completely calm. So, shortly after the plane took off at 3 p.m., uh, Cooper handed the stewardess a note, which she immediately put into her pocket. But before she could walk away, Cooper said loudly, Miss, you better take a look at that note. I have a bomb. He then opened his briefcase to reveal red sticks and a large amount of wiring. Now, this is one thing I've always found sort of funny about this case. Um, not the fact that he had a bomb, the fact that he tried to be discreet about it and passed the flight attendant a note. I'm willing to bet you she thought that he was like hitting on her. Like he wrote down, can I get your number or something like that and handed it to her. And then like as she walked away, he just yelled out, hey, uh, I, I have a bomb like that. Yeah. The purpose hey, uh, of what he was doing. He was trying I to got, be discreet about it. Hey, uh, I got a bomb. You might want to take a look at that. Yeah, completely defeats the purpose of it. Now, I said uh, red sticks and wiring because it wasn't confirmed whether that was dynamite and whether he had an actual bomb. A lot of people have said he likely just used spray paint and a bit of plastic or metal to make it look like he had one, when in reality, he probably didn't. Uh, Now, he told the stewardess to write down his demands and take them to the captain. So first, he asked for $200,000 in cash by 5 p.m. Interestingly, he asked for the money to be in exclusively $20 bills. Next, he asked for four parachutes, two front ones and two back ones. Finally, he asked for a fuel truck to be waiting for them when they landed. He also said, no funny stuff or I'll do the job, which again shows how cool and like calm he was during this event. I think most people would probably be freaking out if they were robbing a plane. He was just sitting there like what he, the way he says i'll do the job it's like he does this every saturday like it's nothing to him whatsoever 
like you'd expect them to be in the mafia. Like, hey, no funny stuff. We'll do the job. I capisce. Exactly. That's that's exactly what I picture when I hear that phrase. No funny stuff or I'll do the job. Like, I'm willing to bet you he was a hardened criminal when he wrote this. Uh, now, after the Boeing 727 landed in Seattle, Cooper, uh, in Seattle, sorry, Cooper traded the passengers for the money and the parachutes. After this, the plane took off with Dan ordering the pilots to fly to Mexico City, but to remain under 10,000 feet. Flight crew told him that the aircraft would not be able to make it all the way to Mexico City, so he agreed for the plane to land in Reno, Nevada to refuel. What's interesting about this is that during the investigation, the pilots told the FBI that Cooper had not specified what route they should fly, just that the end destination should be Mexico City. And you're about to see why this was interesting. So during this portion of the flight, Dan put on the black wraparound sunglasses that are infamous from this story. Which, again, again, he's, again, he's such a badass. Just, he's just robbing. He just hijacked this plane, robbing it, and all he does is just whip out some sunglasses like he's Tom Cruise. Again, we're not condoning what he's doing. Like he robbed um, hundreds of thousands of dollars from this airline, so we shouldn't be condoning that. But yeah, it is. It is absolutely insane how cool and calm he was during this very stressful situation. It is absolutely nuts. Now, yeah, if, you're rob- if you're robbing a plane, you might as well do it in style. <laughs> might as well, I guess. Uh, so finally, uh, sometime uh, during the flight to Reno, Den Cooper put on the four parachutes, took off his clip-on tie, and jumped out the back stairs of the 727, never to be seen again. Now, sorry, that was a typo that he didn't put on four parachutes. He actually put on two of the parachutes and left the other two behind. Now, uh, investigators have speculated that he likely did that like he ordered the four parachutes to try and throw off the uh, police on the ground. They made it seem as though he was going to take a hostage with him. Um, and we'll get into a little later why this was also interesting, um, like what types of parachutes he used and how that could have affected his chances for survival. But uh, overall, it was very, it was a very bizarre case, but it was a very interesting case too. Absolutely. Now, again, something else that is interesting, I uh, said we'd go back to this, was the pilot said they had planned out the route, which is weird considering Cooper knew he was going to jump out of the aircraft at some point during the flight. Like if he had, if he had had someone on the ground who was helping him, if he had had an accomplice, he would have needed to know where he was going to be flying. He would have needed to plan out his own flight path. Not only that, but it was said that on the night that he jumped, there was uh, severe wind, and even a rainstorm. So it's weird that he jumped out into territory he knew nothing about in only a suit and a tie. Or not the tie, but he was wearing a suit and just standard black shoes. So it does not seem at all well thought out, though it could be that this was um, a deception uh, a deception tactic and it was actually extremely well thought out. And this was just to throw the FBI off his case. Now, to talk a little bit about the FBI investigation that followed the hijacking uh, is Sergeant Paul. So, Sergeant Paul, just go ahead whenever you're ready. Thank you. So, the D.B. Cooper case was named NORJAC, standing for Northwest Hijacking. And the NORJAC case is considered to be one of the largest and most extensive investigations in FBI history, remaining open for 40 years, only closing in 2011. So over the first five years of the investigation, uh, sorry, over 800... uh, just 
one quick thing, Sergeant Paul. Uh, sorry, yeah. that was supposed to be over 40 years. It was closed in uh, uh, 2016. So it was just about 45 years that it was oh, open. Damn. Sorry, right. I probably should have mentioned that. All right, then. So over the first five years of the investigation, over 800 subjects or suspects, mistake, were considered, but the FBI eventually narrowed it down to just 24. All the flight attendants were interviewed separately, and from this, the FBI gained a description of D.B. Cooper being a white man between the ages of 35 and 45, but somewhere between 5 foot 9 and 6 foot in height, 150 to 190 pounds, with black hair and brown eyes. He was also described as wearing a black suit and tie, as well as a dark trench coat. Using this description, the FBI released several now infamous sketches of what Cooper might look like. So the next problem for the FBI was figuring out where Cooper jumped. This was because the sole flight attendant left on board had only shown him how to operate the 727's rear exit stairs before returning to and locking herself in the cockpit with the rest of the flight crew. And even the fighter jets that had been assigned to escort the aircraft hadn't seen him jump either, as it was the middle of the night. However, the flight crew reported that they had felt a strange vibration in the aircraft sometime between 8.10 and 8.15 p.m. This vibration was likely Cooper walking down the stairs and jumping out the back exit. However, using this info, the FBI was able to estimate that he had jumped roughly 40 kilometers north of Portland. And while this narrowed down the search zone considerably, there was still no real way of knowing where he had ended up. And interestingly, though, in 1980, nine years after the hijacking, a young boy and his father found several thousand dollars of the stolen money in a paper bag, which had been washed up on a beach called Tina Bar in southern Washington. It was believed that this money was dropped during Cooper's fall, and it ended up in the Lewis or Columbia Rivers. One thing that is pretty interesting about this money is that experiments on how the money reacted to the elements show that it was buried at some point, possibly by Cooper or someone else. Overall, D.B. Cooper was never found. And in 2016, 45 years after the investigation began, the FBI announced they were calling off a search and labeling Norjack a cold case. All right. Thank you, Sergeant Paul. So I just quickly want to go back to something um, you said there. It was that uh, the money had been buried at some point. Yes, yeah, so they did uh, quite a few tests on both the money itself and the rubber bands that were found to be holding the money. And they found that if they had been exposed to the elements such as rain uh, and water, tides, things like that, the rubber bands would have probably decayed and broken off at some point. However, considering that they were intact nearly 10 years after this uh, incident had happened, uh, they think it is very likely that either Cooper or someone else had buried that money. So this, again, can be widely debated uh, as to whether it was Cooper himself who buried the money or if someone came across his dead body, if he had maybe uh, died during the fall and maybe they took some of the money from him and buried it. Now, one other quick thing I wanna mention that has absolutely nothing to do with this case is while I was doing research on it, I found out that it was near a city called Vancouver, but Vancouver, Washington. So I think we were all thinking of Vancouver, Canada, like when you think of Vancouver, but this was apparently a very major city of just over 180,000 people. So it's larger than Barrie, which is where we're from. And we had never even heard of it because we always thought of Vancouver as being the Canadian version. We had never heard of Washington. So yeah, that has nothing to do with the case. 
just thought it was something sort of interesting that was in there. Nice little fun fact. Yeah, nice little fun fact that has something to do with geography, nothing to do with aviation. All right, so following this, the FBI had uh, built a profile on the personality type of D.B. Cooper. And quickly, sorry, just before we move forward, um, I want to explain where the name D.B. Cooper comes from because he registered his ticket as Dan Cooper. So a lot of people have always wondered where did the name D.B. Cooper came from? Apparently, that was because when the police and the FBI first started their investigation, they looked into a man with the initials D.B. Cooper was living in the area, who was living, uh, can't remember if it was either in Seattle or Portland, but he was living in that area. And so they followed up on it thinking it might be Dan Cooper, but it turned out not to be him. However, when they were reporting that back, a news station got a hold of it and thought it was a credible lead. So they uh, published the name D.B. Cooper. And I got to be honest, D.B. Cooper is a lot cooler of a name than Dan Cooper. And oh, yeah, Paul, definitely. You can, you can agree with me on that, right, guys? Right. Yeah. All yeah. right. So, yeah, sorry, going back to what I was just saying, the FBI had built a profile on the personality type of D.B. Cooper. And here to explain what they determined he was like is Sergeant McConnell. So, Sergeant McConnell, go ahead. Thank you. So D.B. Cooper likely had military experience and he likely had extensive knowledge of the area. He had a high criminal record and it was disputed whether he was a highly trained parachuter or a complete amateur. All right. Thank you, Sergeant McConnell. So uh, you might cut out just a little bit at the end there, but yeah, we mainly got uh, most of what you were saying. So yeah, that last point has been um, very widely debated, whether he was uh, a very experienced parachuter or skydiver or whether he was a complete amateur. And there are very valid arguments for both sides. Uh, so first of all, for why he might've been an amateur, when he ordered the four parachutes, they accidentally gave him a dummy parachute that had been sewn shut and was meant solely for training purposes and that was actually one of the two parachutes he used when he jumped out of the aircraft. Now, some people have said that um, this was likely because he didn't actually want to use two parachutes. He wanted to use one and just use the other to carry the money since he really didn't have a bag. So, yeah, that is a very convincing argument to why he would have been a trained parachuter. Um, but another thing that was pointed out was of the four parachutes he was given, three of them, or sorry, the two that worked, uh, so there are three that worked. Two of them were civilian style that were steerable. One of them was military style that was not steerable. He chose to take the one that was sewn shut and the one that was the military style not steerable. Some people have pointed out that this might have meant he was uh, an inexperienced parachuter. However, some other have said that he might have been a paratrooper and he was using that because he was more familiar with that type of equipment. So again, we really have no way of proving this until we actually catch D.B. Cooper. Uh, but now that we've talked a little bit about that, let's talk about what the, or who, sorry, the main suspects of this case were. So there were five main suspects that were brought up by the FBI. The first one was Robert W. Rackstraw, and he was a decorated army paratrooper and a helicopter pilot. He also had extensive knowledge with explosives and had a long criminal record. He also had an uncle named John Cooper, who was a skydiving enthusiast. Only a few months before the hijacking, 
he had been dishonorably discharged from the military, which might have been a motive, especially considering that one of the flight attendants recalled Cooper saying that he had a grudge, not against the airline and at no one in particular. Now, when he was approached by journalists and private investigators, Rackstraw neither confirmed nor denied that he was D.B. Cooper. In a lot of cases, he said, maybe I am, maybe I'm not, but there was never enough evidence for the police or the FBI to actually investigate him or for them to actually arrest him. Um, now, on the other hand, uh, Rackstraw actually had lightly colored eyes. And as we established earlier, Cooper had brown eyes. He was also only 28 at the time, and flight attendants had said that D.B. Cooper was likely middle-aged. So it could have been him, but it, it probably wasn't him, which, again, that's probably going to be a big theme for a lot of these suspects. They look very promising, and you're going to think, oh, it's, it's clearly him, and then, nope, here comes a whole bunch of facts of why it wasn't him, and we'll gradually get more and more, oh, it's got to be that guy they'll gradually get like more and more sane, more and more uh, realistic. So the next suspect was Kenneth P. Christiansen, and he had served as a paratrooper during World War II and was a flight attendant at Northwest Orient Airlines. So in this theory with this suspect, they're saying it might've been an inside job from someone actually working at the airline. Now he was 45 years old, which put him inside the age range and he was left-handed, just like Cooper supposedly was. After he passed away in 1994, his family discovered over $200,000 in his bank account. So, the exact amount Cooper requested. Hmm. Exactly. So, yeah, he's sounding already very suspicious, and he's sounding exactly like he's our guy. But again, here comes all the info on why he's not our guy. So, um, first of all, he was apparently said to be shorter and weighed less than Cooper did. He also had uh, different hair. So it was said that he had thinner hair, like he was uh, going a little bit bald. Um, and finally, the money in his bank account was deemed to be not suspicious as he had sold off a large amount of land just before his death. So yeah, the police had uh, investigated into where that money came from and they found that the $200,000 was perfectly normal. He got it just from selling some stuff. Uh, so next, our next uh, suspect was Richard F. McCoy Jr., and he became a suspect in 1972 after he hijacked a Boeing 727 and parachuted out of the rear exit, the same as in the D.B. Cooper case. So it was the exact same aircraft and the exact same method, which is what really put the FBI and the police on high alert. He was doing the exact same thing as D.B. Cooper. Now, this does open up the, the question that he might have been uh, a copycat. Maybe he had read about what D.B. Cooper did and just copied it, considering that no one had ever found Cooper. He thought maybe the same thing would work for him. Um, now, some other similar, sorry, similarities were the fact that he had used a fake hand grenade to threaten the crew. So he'd used explosives or fake explosives similar to D.B. Cooper, and he had informed the crew of his demands by passing them a note. McCoy had also used the phrase, no funny stuff in his note, exactly the same as D.B. Cooper. Though again- He has been reading a lot of dime novels. <laughs> yeah, the one thing is though, though, 
considering how famous that line was after the media frenzy that surrounded this case, there is the possibility that he just put it in there because, again, he was probably trying to copycat D.B. Cooper. So I think that's the one big problem about a lot of these big investigations. They always lead to there being copycats out there. Like most major federal investigations you can look at and you will find a copycat for that crime, whatever was committed. Um, now, moving on to some of uh, the other things that sort of make him look guilty was that he had served in the Vietnam War as a demolitions expert and he was qualified as a helicopter pilot. However, McCoy was an experienced skydiver. And as we said, some people have uh, speculated that Cooper was not an experienced skydiver. So again, we really have no way of telling if he was experienced or if he was a complete amateur. But if he was inexperienced, that would mean that we have to rule this guy out because he was a very experienced skydiver. Um, let's see, what else is there? Uh, right, so another um, big sort of difference was McCoy had been very strict about the flight path that the pilots flew on in uh, his hijacking, whereas Dan Cooper was not. He just cared about what the end destination was, which is a very big difference between the two of them. Uh, and finally, McCoy was only 29 at the time, which meant he was too young to fit the description. Not only that, but all of the flight attendants from flight 305 so that they were completely sure it wasn't him. So again, he started off as a very promising candidate. He had pulled off an identical crime a year later, but nope, the flight attendants confirmed it wasn't him. And he had a lot of other stuff going on that made it look like he wasn't D.B. Cooper. Uh, so next is uh, Dwan L. Weber. I think I pronounced that right. Or no, that might be Dwayne. Sorry, Dwayne L. Weber. And he became a suspect in 1995 and he told his wife that he was Dan Cooper well on his deathbed. Following this confession, Weber's wife recalled several interesting facts. First of all, he had an injury that he told her he got while jumping out of a plane. Uh, he supposedly had recurring nightmares of leaving his fingertips on a plane. And just one year before the money was found at Tina Bar, Weber had taken his wife there on vacation. Like, mm -hmm. I... I'm just thinking, what are the odds of that coincidence that, well, first of all, he confessed to being Dan Cooper. However, right. that, that might not be accurate because he might have just been trying to go out in uh, a bit of glory. Like that might have been like on his deathbed. He thought, hey, I might as well claim to be this one guy, the, like one of the greatest criminals in aviation history that's never been caught. So I don't know if his story can really be proven. I mean, he definitely is an interesting uh, suspect. He's definitely, he has a lot of the criteria. And yeah, the fact that he went to Tina Bar the year before the money was found is very interesting. Because right. what are the odds that one of the main suspects would go to this random area where this very massive and very important piece of evidence would later be found? I think that the odds are just too slim for this to be called a coincidence. Yeah. Well, then again, you never know. There have been a lot of interesting coincidences in history. Well, and we are about to see that. So, so, yeah, in addition to some of these facts, he was also a World War II veteran, and he had a large criminal record, which matched the uh, profile very well, the FBI's personality type. However, none of the fingerprints were his. None of the fingerprints that were left behind on the plane were his. Not only that, but his DNA wasn't a match for the DNA that was found 
on the clip-on tie that Cooper left behind. So again, this guy started off as probably the most promising candidate we had. Sorry about that. I just received a text. So uh, if anyone heard that, very sorry. Right. But if like this guy started off as the most promising candidate here, I think, and then we went right back to, nope, not his fingerprints, not his DNA. So we have to move on to our fifth suspect, which was so William J. So Smith. Pardon? Sorry? So close, yet so far. I can easily describe any of these five suspects. They're so close to matching D.B. Cooper. Like, it is absolutely insane. If anyone has ever read up about this case, it is nuts how close all of these guys come to matching the exact description. Not only that, but they look nearly exactly like what the the sketch looked like. So the FBI had that um, that uh, sketch, like a wanted poster with D.B. Cooper's face on it from the witnesses. And these guys almost all look exactly like that sketch. It is absolutely insane. So our final suspect was William J. Smith, and he had served in the Navy during World War II and had some experience of parachuting. Now, when I say he had experience of parachuting, he wasn't a paratrooper. He had done it only a few times. So what this means is he might've been um, experienced enough to ask for four different parachutes and he might've taken the military one because that's what he was used to, but he might've also been inexperienced enough to be willing to jump out of an aircraft in the middle of the night in a storm. So he, he's definitely a very interesting candidate. Now, he also had brown eyes and matched the description almost identically. Not only that, but when the FBI made an aged version of the Wanted poster in 1995, he looked nearly identical to that. Now, it is also alleged that he knew a boy named Ira Daniel Cooper while he was in school, which might have been the namesake for his uh, cover name or his uh, alter ego. Now, in 1970, uh, the railway, which Smith had worked for, filed for bankruptcy, and he lost his pension and source of income, which gave him a possible motive just one year before the robbery. Now, it also explains why he said he didn't have a grudge against this particular airline, but just a grudge in general. He might have been angry towards the airlines and the aviation industry as a whole, which he thought were stealing passengers away from the railways. Now, it has also been pointed out that he could have used his knowledge of the railroad networks to escape on a passing train, which would explain why he was never found. Now, there are also particles of rare metals found on the tie Cooper had left behind. These were metals that were very rare for any common person to have come in contact with in the 1970s. But Smith would have had access to many types of rare cargoes and metals while working in a rail yard. So that perfectly sorry, perfectly explains where those rare metals got onto his tie from. Um, now, despite this, some experts have pointed out that Smith worked in the Northeast United States and would have likely had very little knowledge of railways on the West Coast. However, what I have to say to that is, it doesn't matter where you're from, you can still do research on where you're planning to do a heist. For example, I actually, I'm very interested in urban planning. So I know a lot about railways that are on completely the other side of the world. So it is not unreasonable to think that he might have read up on some of the railways that were 
on the west coast of the United States. I think that's a very reasonable assumption, especially if he was planning to do a heist there. Right. I mean, it's not too hard to look at a map. Yeah, exactly. All right. So that finishes off uh, who our suspects are. Now let's move on to our only two theories. And these theories are pretty simple. The first one is that he survived the fall and was able to evade the police and the FBI. And the second one is that he was killed during the jump, but his body was never recovered. And we're going to have a little bit of a debate on what we think happened here. So, Paul, do you want to start us off? Do you have any opinion on what you think happened? Personally, I think he survived. Honestly, I, I would have to agree with you on that. People have pointed out, um, yes, he jumped into a wooded area in the middle of the night during a storm, which really doesn't seem like a good idea. But yeah, his body was never found. And aside from the uh, little bit of money that was found on Tina Bar, no, his money was never found. I'm thinking the only scenario where he might have been killed on impact was maybe if he fell and someone found his body and they took the money and maybe his body fell into a river or because the, yeah, there were tons of lakes and rivers in the region. If it had fallen into a river, there's a good chance it might've flowed all the way out to the Pacific ocean. But so, there is also one major detail here that wasn't mentioned in the episode. That's pretty that, that also kind of solidifies this, the first day for me. And it's the fact that no missing persons report was ever submitted for the description of Cooper. Anybody, nobody who had a description of Cooper ever had a missing persons report. Exactly. So Cooper wasn't just um, like a phantom. He was an actual person, which means he likely had family, friends. Uh, he likely had people he worked with, people who knew him. If he had just randomly gone missing for months upon months at a time, it's very reasonable that he would have been reported missing and the FBI or the police would have seen that report and been able to sort of piece together who D.B. Cooper was. But yeah, as Sergeant Paul just said, no one ever filed a missing person's report. So that leads us to believe that he returned to those people or he sent them some sort of confirmation that he was alive. So I think there's a very good chance that he survived. And if I'm being honest, I think the probably most likely suspect was William J. Smith, the last guy. He seems like he has the most motive. He has, um, he has the right sort of set of skills. Like um, he didn't have too much experience with parachuting, but he had just enough to sort of know what he was doing. Um, not to mention that he worked with those rare materials that were found on the tie. Um, and finally, he, he really knew the area well, or he knew the railways across the United States well. I think it's very likely he could have hopped on a train and the FBI wouldn't have been looking for him. My Personally, my guy is Christensen. The flight attendant? And No, the World War II paratrooper. Yeah, sorry. So yeah, he was a paratrooper and then he became a flight attendant. Okay. Yeah, that guy. Um, yeah, There's a lot of paratroopers in this one, wasn't there? <laughs> yeah. But the main thing here that solidifies it for me is the fact that he had 200 grand in his bank account and he could have like, and sure he got it from selling off a large property, but nobody ever says that money wasn't laundered. Yeah, that's a very good point. 
Now, with all that said, sorry, uh, Sergeant McConnell, did you just quickly want to weigh in on that whole debate there on whether he survived and evaded capture or whether he um, was killed during his jump? Um, yeah, so I agree with you guys. I think he survived once again because like there wasn't ever a missing persons like case filled out or anything. So that really kind of just says that he would have survived because like you guys said, this is a person. Like he has a family, he has friends, right? And obviously if he didn't survive and he didn't return to where he was, those people would be concerned and fill out a case, so. Yeah, exactly. And they, they likely would have found his body too if he had been killed. Now, with all that said, we will likely never find an answer to this case because uh, the D.B. Cooper hijacking happened over 45 years now. In fact, it's over 50 years now as of 2022. But with all that said, that is just about our time for tonight. So we'd once again like to thank you for listening to the Ave Geeks podcast. Goodbye, and we'll see you next time. Have a good one.